You're now tuned in to VC Cheat Sheet, the podcast that gives entrepreneurs straight to the point information and behind the scenes access on raising money. Brought to you by the Center for Urban Entrepreneurship and Economic Development at Rutgers University. You're listening to VC Cheat Sheet and I'm your host, Melissa S. Jackson. If this is your first time listening, then thank you for tuning in. And if not, thanks for coming back. The goal of the podcast is to help Black and Latino-led startups gain insight into the world of venture and private capital through mentorship and advice. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at The Q, that's T-H-E-C-U-E-E-D. All the links are provided in the show notes at bccheatsheet.com. Now let's get into the show. Molina Nino is a powerhouse in the VC community, and she believes in outcomes over optics. Natalie is a CEO and founder of Brava Investments, which targets high growth, scalable businesses that make an economic impact on women. I spoke with Natalie about the media and the stories surrounding Black and Latino ventures, especially women-led ventures. We talk about the struggles of women getting funded, and she drops a few gems on what we can do about it. Take a listen. So for people who are listening to, um, you know, this, this episode of uh, VC Cheat Sheet, can we start off by talking about what the numbers are related to uh, women ventures, the number of women ventures, um, and the amount of them who are actually being backed and supported by venture capital? Mm. Well, it's actually less this year than last year, which is really appalling, Um the numbers hover, and there are different studies that say different things, but they're all in the single-digit percentages. Uh, the one that I tend to quote is 4.7%. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the recent studies show a little less even. Um, and then if you take within that subset what percentage are uh, black or Latina um, run, then it gets even smaller um, to the point of being just statistically insignificant, which is ridiculous if you think about the fact that the most statistically significant entrepreneurial group in this country are black women and Latina um, are a close second. But, um, you know, so this is the the place and the demographic that has the most entrepreneurial activity, and yet they are the ones that are getting um, the least amount of venture capital specifically. And the other forms of capital are equally um, poor in terms of their performance. Um, and I have all sorts of ideas for why. But yeah, that's that's the baseline. And it's really, um, <laughs> it's bad. Um, but it also means that for those of us that are in the business of solving that problem, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of room to make an impact. So let's talk about those whys, because I'm very curious because, you know, obviously you've dedicated your life work to um, empowering and supporting women led um, and, and, and ventures that are going to impact women. So from your perspective, why is this happening? So the reason I believe this to be true, um, and I've spent like the last six, nearly seven years dedicated to this, is what I call the valley of death right? Um, I think that the thing that we're not talking about is that we're citing these statistics about how, the, you know, more black women are starting businesses than anyone else in this country. And then we're pairing that statistic with the one that we just discussed, right? The, the 
practically statistically negligible percentage of venture capital that's going to, for example, black-owned businesses, black women-owned businesses especially. Um, and what we're not accounting for is what comes in between. So the businesses that um, black and Latino, um, Latinas are starting tend to be micro-businesses. They tend to be, um, you know, that woman who decides to start selling that, you know, baking product that she's super into or the, you know, so there's these sort of micro businesses, the restaurants, et cetera. Um, and then we, when we cite the statistics around venture capital, we forget that between the micro business, the business that I started at home, you know, the business that started off as a freelancer project and now it's its own um, business to getting to in front of being in front of a VC, there is a huge valley in between there. And I call it the valley of death because what you need in order to get through that valley of death is you need connections, which means mm -hmm. you probably went to a really great school and you probably, you know, dormed with people whose parents can write you big checks, et cetera. So you need connections. Um, you need your own capital potentially. So you might have a savings account or a 401k or any, or, or, or mom and dad, who knows. Um, but you have money in the bank to be able to take time off of work. You have money in the bank to be able to make investments, to buy machinery, or to do all the different things that you need to take out of your own pocket to be able to invest in your first company. And then the third thing that you need is you need um, friends and family with deep pockets who can do what, what I, I hate the name of this thing, but to, who can participate in your friends and family round, right? Mm -hmm. um, typically, a VC is expecting you to have had those three things already under your belt, meaning that you've already bootstrapped your company for a while, you've already raised your friends and family around, and you've probably gotten customers, and you've probably gotten a little press, you've gotten the things that connections get you, which means mm -hmm. that if you are a woman who does not have connections, her own capital, or friends and family with deep pockets, that valley of death is exactly that, and you never get to the point of being ready to be in front of a venture capitalist raising your Series A. You're just, you don't even get into that room because you don't have those three things that the venture capitalists assume that you have. Yeah, there seems that there's a lot of assumption in this space, right? And this, this term inherent bias comes up a lot. Um, so, and you know, when I've seen it, I've seen it in the case where there's a woman who has a great business, and I understand it because I'm a woman, um, but speaking to a white male, he may not necessarily get it. So um, can you talk through this idea of inherent bias and, you know, what, what can women do to kind of break through that? So assuming that you've already gotten through, you're one of the very, very few people that have gotten through that valley of death, then you're in front of the typical VC, right? And what we know about VCs is that, is that there are very few women and there are even few women of color who are um, at the, in the VCs as partners or even as associates, um, yeah, you're talking to an audience that is accustomed to doing what they call oftentimes pattern recognition, right? They're investing in people who have ideas that they're familiar with. They're investing in people who look like what they're familiar with, not just necessarily looks like them, but then there's the added reinforcement of who gets to be on the cover of Fast Company and Inc. Magazine and Entrepreneur. Um, and the data shows um, and the history shows that typically those are white males and the right. type of companies that they produce are certain types of companies. They're probably not looking at hair care products for black women. They're probably not looking mm -hmm. at, you know, the, the type of products 
that actually have huge market potential and certainly huge revenue potential um, and the potential for significant growth, but it's in domains that they don't have a lot of experience with um, either as a business person or even on a personal level because they're not products that they use. They're not in neighborhoods with communities that they are, you know, commingling with. So in many respects, these are just like unknown territory for your typical VC. And so, you know, there, and I, I would say that that's one part of inherent bias, the, the part that is just like lack of exposure or lack of understanding. Um, and also I would say an unwillingness to explore those areas. If I'm a VC, mm-hmm. even if I've never used a certain product or even if I'm not familiar with a certain demographic, I would suggest that the VC's job is not to care about whether you're familiar with it or not. If it makes money, you're a VC, you need to go and research that field and research that industry and get very familiar with it because if you're in the business of making your investors money, that's your job, right? So there's that. um, And and I would say that most people don't do that homework and they don't do that research. They just go with what's familiar and what's known. And that's one form of bias. And the other form is the form that we all know, the form that exists not just in business, but in politics and in the greater society, which is just racial bias, right? Um, everybody's a little bit racist. Everybody's a little bit sexist. <laughs> and if you haven't mm-hmm. spent any time, energy looking inside at your own inherent biases, then that's a second kind of bias that also sort of comes into play, right? You couple those two things and you're looking at a pretty insurmountable um, and challenging world for a woman of color who's founded a business to navigate. Um, so in, in my opinion, the only solution to that is um, to get more women and especially women of color to get on the other side of that table and to become investors, which is why I'm doing what I'm doing. And then the second thing is to stop allowing this pattern recognition to be an excuse anymore. You know, if, if right. an NFL coach was to come back to the investors or the owners of a team and say, you know, I I tried to find the best talent in the country, but, you know, it's hard. Like, (laughs) that person would lose their freaking job. Like, you're the coach of an NFL team. There's no, this is hard excuse. Your job is to scour this country and to work your ass off finding the best talent there is. There are no excuses about this is hard or I can't find them or, you know, know, they're hard to reach. They don't live in my neighborhood. I don't know where they are. That's just simply not an excuse. You find them because that's your job. And I think that more and more VCs especially need to realize that that's their job. Absolutely. And so speaking of your your, your personal investment on being on the other side of the table, um, you have an investment company called Brava Investments, correct? Mm-hmm. That's correct. So can we tell me a little bit about, you know, your why? I know on your landing page on your website, uh, you talk a lot about optics over outcomes, which I'm a huge fan of uh, that concept. Um, but you also talk a little bit about it being bigger than creating the next like Uber uh, or, or, or the next Airbnb, creating the next billionaire, but it's about creating wealth for women. So talk me through, you know, that why and how you came to that uh, realization. Sure. So, yeah, I say outcomes over optics a lot. And um, the reason I say that is because I think that we have been focused too much on optics and not so much on 
outcomes. And by optics, mm-hmm. I mean symbols, right? So it's a beautiful symbol to see that, like, a woman is being placed as CEO of a Fortune 50 or, or, or to take a woman, invest in her company, and make her a billionaire. And everybody rallies around those stories, and we think, this is great. We're making progress. Mm-hmm. And here's my concern, is if I am a woman like my mom, you know, who who worked, who didn't go to college in order to for me to go to college, um, and my family who worked in the sweatshops of Los Angeles. And I think of those symbols of that woman CEO or that woman, you know, whose company got funded and then she became a billionaire. Those fundamentally for most women are stories that you read in magazines. They are symbols that certainly inspire you. But today, like tomorrow, like at the end of the month in terms of paying my rent, making sure that my kids can go to college, putting food on the table, I can't eat symbols. I can't pay my rent with symbols. <laughs> I can't live and survive with symbols. So my concern is that we are way too focused on symbols and we have to be focused on real, real outcomes for as many women as possible. And so in my case, um, I focus on the top of the funnel. I kind of think of, um, to your point about the, the focus, if you were to make me choose, me personally, and this is, this is Brava and my company, if you were to make me choose right. between investing in one woman and making sure that she's super successful and she becomes a billionaire, uh, which I think is an honorable, amazing thing to do, um, but if you were to put me in a situation where I had to choose between investing in that one woman and making her a billionaire or investing in a company that is potentially going to make a billion women economically better off, mm-hmm. I'm going to choose B. And not everybody is me and not everybody has that thesis, but that is the thesis of Bravo. We invest in companies that put more money in the wallets of as many women as possible. So it's companies that can scale. It's companies that are making a measurable, you know, real impact on the economics of as many women as possible. And in the case of Brava, I don't actually care if the founder is a man or a woman because I care about the maximum number of women that we can impact. So for example, if some guy invents the cure to breast cancer, I don't care that that's not a woman-led company. That is a company that, if it's successful, is going to impact economically, never mind also the health and the lives, but but also economically impact millions of women all around the world. And that's what I care about first and foremost, because that you can feed families with, you can pay your rent with. That actually makes a difference right here, right now. So what does your uh, investment in these companies look like? Are you, you know, doing a lot of seed funding uh, of of women-led or uh, women impact ventures? Or is this just kind of taking the cream of the crop and helping them get out of the valley of death, as you stated earlier? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, In my case, we are we have such a very specific thesis, right? So they have to be scalable companies. They have to be high yield companies. We prefer companies that have the potential to throw out a lot of cash. Um, And the reason being is because we're a holding company and not structured as a fund. And so we want to be open to the possibility of companies that may not get acquired or may not go public and may just be very profitable companies that are throwing out cash every quarter. Um, Very much in the Berkshire Hathaway uh, style of investing in that sort of Warren Buffett way. Mm -hmm. And so we are stage agnostic, provided that they meet our thesis. And the industries that we tend to Uh focus on are healthcare, education, and consumer products. 
Um, and the reason that we chose those three industries is because those three industries are high growth industries, so they meet the first part of our thesis in that they're going to yield good results for our investors. Um, and second, because women tend to represent the majority in those three industries, either mm -hmm. in the form of the workforce or in the form of the consumer. In the case of healthcare, it's both. Women are the majority of the workforce and they're also the majority of the consumer. Um, so provided that they meet our thesis, they're in one of the three uh, domains that we focus on, we don't care so much what stage they're in as long as they meet you know, the thematic uh, screens that we've built. And so while I suspect that many of our investments will be later stage, uh, we are talking to a number of companies that are very early stage. Some of them are even pre-revenue, um, but they have the potential for scale and for impact and for great returns especially. Perfect. So going back to this idea of uh, the actual venture firms, um, there's an article in TechCrunch that says <clears throat> women hold just under 12% of the partner roles at both accelerators and corporate venture firms. And so, you know, there's a lot of talk about developing a pipeline for tech talent, which is important. Um, how do we develop a pipeline for partners at venture firms, though? Because that's not a conversation that's talked about either. Like there has to be support on both sides. Yeah, well, there are a few people doing it, but I would love to see more. So, for example, um, uh, Pipeline Angels was Pipeline Fellows previously, and it was started by my friend Natalia Obertinoguera. She's Colombian. She's fantastic. Um, she is 100% doing it for the mission. Um, and now they're doing angel investing, and they have sort of an angel syndicate. And so the premise behind pipeline was that they were taking women who had the ability to write checks, not necessarily massive checks. Um, so mm -hmm. there were very high net worth women. And then there were some women that just had a little bit of disposable income and they could put 10, 15, 20,000 um, into, into venture. And so what they were doing is what she was finding is that these women were able to, but they were not comfortable doing it because they didn't understand the space. Um, and so what she did created was she created essentially a boot camp, a multi-month boot camp where these women would come together as a cohort and they would get to know one another, they would support one another, and she would train them on becoming investors. And a lot of those investors have then gone on to become, you know, regular um, angel investors. So they're writing smaller checks for early venture. Um, but a lot of them have actually gone beyond that and they've decided to do it at a larger scale and they've created their own VC firms, they've raised their own funds. Um, in a way, Pipeline has become this origin story for a lot of different people. She has touched so, so many people all around the country because now there are Pipeline groups in multiple cities all around the country. Um, when the laws um, around... Um, uh, trans community um, attacking basically the trans community for example in North Carolina were passed or were starting to get traction she said mm -hmm. you know what I'm going to create a pipeline fellows um, group in North Carolina and I'm going to exclusively target the LGBTQ community <laughs> right mm -hmm. so she's, she's solving the problem and she's doing it and going places where she's most needed and out of her community came also 37 angels which is started by Angela Lee who came out of pipeline and now she's doing a similar thing where she's training women um, to become investors so I would say that's one way um, that we do it we create and we participate in programs like pipeline like 37 angels um, Trevor Jackson created another one called Plum Alley um, where they take women and they create, again, these angel syndicates to invest. Um, but another way is, is my path. Um, I, I didn't go the path of 
um, pipeline. Um, as, much, as much as I, I love Natalia, I, I took a weird different path where I was in tech for 15 years and then I focused on supporting women entrepreneurs for six years as a part of a center that I created um, uh, where I co-founded a center for women entrepreneurs as a part of the Athena Center for Leadership Studies at Barnard. Um, mm-hmm. And then I decided, you know what? I am an operator. I know how to grow businesses um, and start businesses. Uh, what I'm not is I'm not a finance expert. So I set out to find a group of partners, and my partners are a company called IX, which is founded by Trevor Nielsen, um, formerly from the Gates Foundation, um, Todd Morley, who is one of the founders of Guggenheim Partners, one of the largest um, investment companies in the world, and Howard Buffett, the, the grandson of of Warren Buffett. And so I basically thought, where's my weakness? Where do I need partners who can bring expertise that I don't bring to the table? I found those partners. Um, I convinced them that, you know, the, the most undervalued asset and therefore the best investment that you can make is companies that support women. They were convinced and they decided to invest in me and to join me in creating Brava. So my path is, is unorthodox, but I would say mm-hmm. that it just shows that someone like me who has really no finance background can do it too, right? And you can go the path of going the Natalia Oberti Nogueta, you know, pipeline mm-hmm. angels, or you can go my path, which is a little bit unusual, but it's all possible. I, I would never suggest that it's easy. Um, but I guess my main message is find your own path. Like find right. your own path, see where your weaknesses are, find partners to fill those gaps and just, do it um, because I think that too many of us worry that we have to we, we have to go and have studied finance. We have to have gotten an MBA. We have to have interned at a VC firm. We have to have spent all this time making it up, you know, and moving up the ladder to become partner. There's nothing wrong with that path, and there are women who are on that path, and they should stay on that path because we really need them. Um, but for the rest of us, um, there's more than one way to get there. Yeah, I think that's 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 a great point. And that's compounded by the fact that women often have the imposter syndrome and feeling as though, you know, they don't have enough of whatever that thing is. That's not enough. Right. Um, let's and I would talk- argue I would argue everyone has imposter syndrome, but I think that the added challenge with women is that we have imposter syndrome just like everyone else. And then we have a world and a context that it hits you harder when you fail, right? We know this to be true. We know that when a woman, for example, runs for public office and she loses a campaign, she's actually less likely to win the next one, whereas guys mm-hmm. run for office and then they lose and then that's fine. Now they've got the first one out of, under their belt and they run the second or third time and and they win. Look at President Obama, right? He won mm-hmm, a lot of, mm-hmm. he lost a lot of campaigns. Um, so I, I think it's a combination of imposter syndrome with, that everyone struggles with and then the actual reality that when women fall down and fail, uh, they have a harder time getting up because we live in a society that criticizes them, criticizes them a lot more harshly uh, when they fail and makes it harder for them to pick back up and start again, right? So I guess my point is, is um, it's, it's internal work, but it's also external work. It's not just in our heads. It's actually the reality that we live in, right? What are your thoughts on the narratives around women in the media? So I think the media narrative is important. I would say that when we're talking about narratives, um, we also have to talk about the narrative within the industry outside of media. So 
you know, the media might be saying one thing, but the venture capitalists are doing something else, right? So the media, I think, is mm -hmm. starting to evolve the narrative. And so you're starting to see more and more traction in stories about the fact that companies that have women on the board outperform others. Companies with diversity at the sea level do better. Companies with diversity generally, right, perform better. So you're kind of starting to see the media change some of that story. I would say they still have a long way to go because if you count, again, who, um, what gender tends to be on the covers of things, and you know, these, the, the math continues to be not where it should be, and it's far from parity, but I'm starting to see some traction in those stories. What narrative worries me more is that no matter how many research studies I read about, no matter how many articles I see talking about, you know, why it, it makes a difference and why, you know, women-led companies outperform, you know, um, companies that don't have that kind of diversity and so on, I don't see that changing in terms of the behavior of um, the capital, the people with capital. And so I think that mm -hmm. the narratives are mm -hmm. important and it's important to look at the different narratives right there. While it might not be um, something that's published um, anywhere, the reality is, is there must be a narrative in the culture and in the heads of these people that are making the decisions about who to invest in and who not to invest in that is a very strong and powerful narrative because it's a narrative that is keeping them from writing checks, right? So, um, right. yeah, I think, right. I think the media narrative has a ways to go, but I do start to see some early signs of, of good things. Um, but I also, I worry when I see, um, you know, women's failures celebrated and when I see both men and women in the media really, you know, going on these witch hunts after people who fail, um, women mm. especially, right? Because that's part of the process. Yeah, I mean, you're supposed to be celebrating failure, and yet when women fail, we really crucify them. And it's not to say that, you know, I'm saying that when women fail, they don't make mistakes, or, you know, we, we shouldn't coach them. But, you know, you've got somebody like Travis who, <laughs> um, by all measure, has failed as a CEO um, and as the leader of a company on many, many fronts. He's created a culture that is toxic. Um, and he's created an organization that I think that a lot of people, um, you know, have take issue with. And yet, um, you know, the approach has not been to uh, remove him from his post. And I think that there are a lot of women who have made um, decisions that are also maybe not the best decisions. It's not to justify mistakes and say that mistakes, you know, are okay. Or you know, people make mistakes, um, and people sometimes create cultures that aren't ideal. Um, but what we typically try to do in the space is you coach those CEOs, you give them resources, you help them out, you help them correct course. Um, but for women who make mistakes and um, in, in, the, in the world of tech especially, what I find is that, yeah, they're, they're hit pretty hard, they're removed pretty quickly. Uh, the media loves and celebrates, you know, um, pointing out all the mistakes that they made and uh, blacklisting them. Um, and I think that that's an issue. That's an issue that I see um, across the board, and it's definitely not the same if you're a female founder versus if you're if you're a male. Right. So I just want to wrap it up a little bit and ask you your thoughts on you know two to three pieces of tactical advice you would give women, particularly women of color, um, who may be in this valley of death, maybe just starting out, on how they can grow and scale. I would say the two things that I think are the most important are the two things that I think that when you're just keeping your head above water, you tend to let fall by the wayside. And one of those is 
the prioritization around networking um, and the prioritization around going outside of your normal sphere of sort of friends um, and colleagues and sort of getting out of those circles and moving into the circles where you find people that are more likely to back you, right, more likely later on, even if you're not raising right now, even if you're just focused on making your company profitable, or maybe your company is profitable, it's just not big, and so you're trying to work on scaling it up, right? You're so busy just getting your head above water that you think, um, you know, that dinner with a bunch of people you've never met um, with potential investors in the room isn't your first priority because you're not raising money yet. My suggestion in that context is to be sure that you are taking the time to make those connections because even if a raise isn't around the corner, um, if it's anywhere on your horizon, those relationships take a while to build and people take a while to figure out that they know you and they trust you and then later they want to invest in you. And so I would say prioritize that even when it mm -hmm. feels mm -hmm. like it isn't the top priority. Um, it always should be. Um, and then the second thing I would say um, is to make sure that for women, um, and as you said, for women of color that are starting businesses, think big. Like, think as big as you can possibly, you know, stretch every dream that you've ever had. Um, and don't be afraid to make sure that people know that while your company is this size today and while you are focusing on solving problem A, B, or C right, right now, and you really have to be focused on what's right in front of you, you have to also, one, have articulated to yourself what is the big, big dream? What is this entire industry that I'm going to turn upside down? Um, and not just articulate it for yourself and have it there, you know, somewhere on a wall somewhere where you can see it every day and remember that that's the end goal, but also make sure that you can tell everyone you meet that that's the end goal. Because I think that people invest in dreams and in big ideas, um, and then they want you to have the logistical and the tactical things taken care of, yes, but the way that you win over people's hearts and their minds is by having a dream and making sure that you can share it in a way that gets other people excited. That was perfect advice. So how can people find out more about you and your work with Bravo Investments? Uh, thanks for asking. <laughs> so uh, probably the best way is to go to bravainvestments.com, but we just announced a new initiative, um, a partnership that actually uh, we were lucky enough to have Valerie Jarrett uh, write an open letter to talk about the announcement of this new thing called Galvanize, which is a training that is going to consist of city tours, uh, tour of, uh, I think at the end of the day, it'll be at least 10 cities all around the country. Um, it includes Philly, it includes Chicago, it includes Miami, um, all over the country. The United States of Women um, is going to be releasing a set of basically trainings. Um, and the trainings will cover five different areas. And one of those areas is going to be entrepreneurship. And the United States of Women for their training, which is called Galvanize, has partnered with Brava. And so we are providing the training um, to hopefully thousands of women all over the country to help them flex those entrepreneurial muscles, to help them um, get from point A to point B um, and kind of up their game, which I think is, is the single most important thing that we can do in this country today. Because as the safety nets and as the various different government structures that were in place um, to support our communities start falling apart around us. Um, we have to start being more and more self-sufficient, and women around this country have proven that they are entrepreneurial. So we've already gotten that far, and the next thing is really just to make sure that they're successful and that those companies grow, uh, because that's really going to be the backbone of how we 
um, resist some of the things um, that are attacking our communities these days and how we thrive even in a chaotic situation like we're in now. That sounds great. And can we follow your this news on Twitter? Yeah. It's, Where are you on Twitter? Um, at Brava Invest. So both Twitter and Instagram um, and actually Facebook page as well. Um, and people can also connect with us via LinkedIn. Perfect. Thank you so much, Natalie. You're always welcome back to talk. <laughs> and hopefully we'll be speaking to you very soon. I appreciate your time. And thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes so you can stay up to date on new episodes featuring more insiders. Have any questions? Leave us a comment on this episode at bccheatsheet.com. Or you can tweet us at the Cued, that's T-H-E-C-U-E-E-D. Until next time, be great, and it's a wrap. <laughs>